Two investors with backing from Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Dennis Crowley, among others. Join us right after this to talk about their new fund. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We have a bonus show for you today. Yes, a bonus show. Two investors, Brian McCullough and Chris Messina, here with us today. They're starting a new AI fund, and I thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to talk about why you start a fund with AI right now. Are there really moats? Is there anything investable? And for anyone thinking about what the next generation of startups are going to look like, well, you're about to hear them. Brian and Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Alex. Alex. So the first question for you guys is, are you bananas? Because I've seen so much discussion on Twitter about people talking about how there are no moats for AI. Very yeah. like prominent investors, Keith Raboy, Sam Lesson, saying that they think that anybody investing in early stage AI right now is relatively insane because the value is ultimately going to go to the big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and the chip makers like NVIDIA. So where exactly are you aiming to play and why do you actually believe? I mean, you've convinced Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon and others to join in. So where are you going to play? Everyone we talk to, no matter what the nature of the call is, eventually it devolves into what are you seeing? And like literally the the conversation with with Mark Andreessen was the same where he's like, "Okay, guys, I'm in. Now, what are you seeing? (laughs) Like um, it, it, it is it is. But everybody's it's it's wide open. I mean, like literally, if you if I know that, you know, AI is a thing has been going on forever. But like this moment is is barely six months old. Which actually, Chris and I can speak to that in, in terms of why we're doing the fund. So, you're calling us investors. We've been on your show before. I'm a podcaster. Chris invented the hashtag. But um, essentially, you're not just investors. But now that you're starting the fund, <laughs> not the label you get. So okay, okay. <laughs> let me let me let me explain as fast as I can. So what we're announcing today is the Ride Home AI Fund, which is a 15 million dollar target fund doing seed, pre-seed, Series A in, in this new AI technology. Uh, most relevant to anyone listening, it's a 506C fund, which is why we can talk about it today, which means any accredited investors listening can invest. So if you're having AI FOMO and want to participate in this moment, but you can't get into an A16Z fund or a, a Thrive fund, you can get into our fund. So check out ridehomefund.com for more info. Um, but essentially, this was... It was almost inspired by Chris. I've been running the Ride Home Fund for two years, and Chris was always a great uh, source of, of deal flow. And and my remit to him was always like, if if there's somebody coming off the bench, you know, that had a previous exit or that you've known for a while, that like by definition you'd invest in whatever they were doing next, uh, send them my way. And uh, around December of last year, it all became AI stuff. And these were folks for whom this wasn't their first rodeo who didn't bite on web three or crypto or whatever, but were activated by this AI moment. And we can give you examples if you're interested, but um, that also activated Chris, which he can speak to, which is we, we were both like, we want to back these people. Um, the talent of, of our, you know, we've both been in the Valley for over 20 years. The, the talent that we're seeing coming off the bench activated by this moment. Um, we just wanted a fund to, to back those folks. Okay, the real question is, where's the investment opportunity? I mean, that's so, of course, you're on the phone with Mark Andreessen, and he's like, yeah, of course, there's opportunity there. 
But again, mm-hmm. what everybody's saying about AI investment is you have the big companies and they're going to crowd out any any seed company that you're funding that doesn't have, for instance, like the, the money to spend on the GPUs or potentially they're building a thin layer on top of something like a ChatGPT and ChatGPT could just subsume it. For instance, character AI, right, which is like it allows you to chat with all these historical figures like it's very easy just to go into ChatGPT and be like, all right, ChatGPT or Bing or Bard, you're a Blinken. Let's have a conversation and it will do that. So then what's the value of a character? So where are you guys seeing specifically outside of the people the investment opportunity to actually make a splash here with seed companies and Series A companies that some of these other luminaries like a Keith Boy or a Sam Lesson are saying do not exist? I think the, the skepticism or the reluctance from a lot of folks is exactly the moment to lean into this because now is when we're going to be learning what types of products actually make sense. So what Brian and I ultimately are looking to invest in is the productization of these new techniques that start from an assumption that software and technology and that the way that humans actually use computers is going to go through a rapid revolution, but that those existing incumbents are going to you know, defend their existing models and how they, they make money currently, whereas a bunch of other folks who don't have to worry about that can build something entirely new that are set with new assumptions. And so part of that is looking at behavior. That's a big piece of how we learn to build social software that people actually wanted to use. And then the second part is coming up with generational brands that actually reconstitute existing marketplaces or product experiences that were in the marketplace, but that could be remade through technology. So looking back on things like Airbnb and Uber, suggest that these were ideas that people understand. You know, you have property, you want to rent it out. You have a vehicle, you want to like lease it out or you want to like drive people around and charge people for that. But bringing technology like GPS and mobile phones to that allowed for these large companies to be created. And I think in a right. similar way, we're going to see the same thing with AI and generative AI. So I'm being reminded now, like hearing the way that you guys speak of this stuff, I'm being reminded <laughs> of a Benedict Evans tweet where he talked about the answer is not that you're going to start to talk to Microsoft Excel. It's that the way that you do spreadsheets just changes because into a completely different form factor where you're going to you upload, for instance, the data. Exactly. Why do you need a spreadsheet? You'll just upload the data right. and talk to it. I would use the analogy of like if this is a paradigm shift in compute, which we believe it is. What was the thing in the paradigm shift of the PC era that sold PCs was the spreadsheet, something that didn't exist before that paradigm shift that allowed accounting to 10, 100x or whatever. We're obviously looking for those things, but but let me back up for a second. Fundamentally, what we believe is, like you asked the question like, well, will the incumbents or the people with the large largest models always win? If that ends up being true, then yes, this is academic, but we don't believe fundamentally that's true. We believe that fundamentally, this is still software. Like how did Zoom win over other sort of, um, you know, um, conferencing software? Why does this one went over that one, Figma went over that. Like in the end, it's the end result of what you do with the software for um, for users in terms of their productivity and their delight in the product. For all of the talk about generative stuff and AI stuff, in the end it's software and in the end it's inputs and outputs, right? So we have this theory that while everyone is still looking for um, what the, you know, investing in this is not on rails yet in the same way that has been for things like SaaS or, or like D2C companies, uh, that, that people understand this is how you build a a company that reaches this many users or, or, or customers or something. Um, but in the end, we think that, um, on the input side, 
it matters, and, and Chris will go into this about our theory of AI varietals, but it matters the models. It matters the data, the input that creates the things, and it, mo it matters the output. So you could have three different startups that are like, we use AI to uh, look at x-rays and find cancer, right? But what have you trained that on? And does one model work better than the other? And, and already people are talking about things like accuracy and not having hallucinations and stuff like that. So people that get more accurate will win. But also, what have you trained it on? Is it, do you like the results it gives you? Does the output, well, I, this output is more accurate, but that output like in a clinical setting allows me to interact better with my patients and things like that. So in the end, we believe that this productization is the way to go because it will be the inputs and the outputs with the underlying software and, and AI stuff sort of abstracted away that will matter. Um, and the analogy that, that uh, I have to give Chris credit for for coming up with is our, our theory of uh, varietals like wine. Hold on. So, uh, we're going to get to your theory, but I also want to ask, <laughs> isn't this kind of a tough area to invest in because you know, what is an AI company? Like if I'm investing in social media or I'm sure. investing in SaaS, okay, I know what I'm doing. If I'm investing in AI companies, all of a sudden you're the range of companies, like you guys can be consumer, you can be business, you mm. can be anything. So how do you pick what you invest in? And then we can get into your varietals theory. It's back to people. It's back to uh, application of the productization. Can I give you an example of a company that we actually have cut a check for? Or, wait, is, you guys have already cut a check and you haven't even yeah. finished raising your fund? It's a 506C. We're allowed to do that. We're moving fast. That's the whole That's idea. Cool. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, definitely. Um, FIY.AI, fixityourself.AI, um, is training models on all of the world's sort of uh, owner's manuals, user's manuals, um, specifications, and things like that. The idea being... Train an AI bot to fix your dishwasher, uh, repair your car. My printer all of a sudden isn't working or is flashing this green light. What does it mean? As opposed to going in and finding the PDFs or calling the 1-800 number, um, they're training on every product under the sun. They're refining the model in terms of can this be a white label thing that a Samsung or a, or a Frigidaire or whatever would use to sort of be the the sort of bot that would inter, interface with the customer so that the customer doesn't have to call the 1-800 number. So that it would save on things like, um, you know, uh, warranty stuff or whatever. Or also on the consumer facing side, what if there was one bot that anytime something broke, you could use your smartphone to like turn on the camera and be like, okay, the dishwasher isn't working, look in the back there, oh, that hose is disconnected, and the bot tells you, well, what that means, and X, Y. So this is inputs and outputs. We love the founding team. They have previous experience in the space, um, relationships with you know OEMs and things like that. Like, that is sort of a, a definitional example of like sort of the productization that, that we like. It's not the only stuff we'll invest in, but like that's, that's where we're seeing stuff that we get excited about yeah i like that i mean the idea that i could like for instance you know com converse with my refrigerator to try to figure out like how it's broken yeah that would the, be the great. analogy i use is like you know how every website has like the sort of chat bot on the bottom right hand corner that if you have yeah. a question like the ai well imagine a, a chat bot ai that comes into the real world into meat space not just on a <laughs> website right yeah like <laughs> i think elon's working on some of those we, we just mm. had um Ethan Mollick uh, on the show. He's a professor at Wharton who assigned his students to use 
ChatGPT in class and talked about how everyone's going to, you know, lots of students are going to be cheating with this stuff. And I personally cannot wait for the first person to cheat with uh, chat or chat refrigerator and, you know, have it like, <laughs> you know, the paper include the term as an AI refrigerator. I cannot complete your paper, however. So let's hear about this AI varietals theory. So what does that mean? Yeah, so, so, so to, I think, uh, generalize from, from the example that Brian just gave. When we were going through this exact exercise, when we were trying to decide, you know, do we want to do this fund or not? And why now? And why us? It stood out to me that there's been this reframe or reframe rather in the, in the business that data is the new oil. And it's been bandied around for quite a while. And the assumption is that if you have just a load of data, you know, you've got some data lake or warehouse someplace on the internet or in someone's cloud that you have an advantage for both training and building AI products. And while there may be some truth to that and having an enormous amount of data can be useful, there's also a lot of crap out there. There's a lot of stuff that's undifferentiated that's just kind of um, nonsense, uh, and, you know, having worked at various tech companies, um, I, I know for a fact that a lot of the stuff inside of these spreadsheets or whatever just is not structured in a way that can be useful for training these data sets. So as I was thinking about a better way to think about the opportunity, it occurred to me that it's not that data is the new oil. It's that data can be thought of as a type of terroir. Uh, and, you know, obviously coming from California, being in California now, you know, we've got uh, Napa Valley right up to the north. And so there are all these places throughout California where the terroir, the earth, the the, the place in which grapes grow, represent different types of um, cultivation opportunities. So essentially by cultivating the land and growing grapes in it and then harvesting those grapes, which of course have grown in different climates uh, with different soil types, that produces different types of expressions in wine. And those different expressions in wine, if you bear with me for this uh, metaphor, are kind of like the types of products that we expect to be able to create from creators of these products that understand deeply the data that they're working with. Maybe they've actually set up the data ingestion pipelines and the refinement pipelines. They understand deeply a customer segment and the needs of those customers. And perhaps most importantly, they have the vernacular or the language of that customer and they know how to speak that customer and to deliver products and services that fit into the environment or the industry that those uh, th their customers are in. So it's not enough to just have a, a whole shit ton of data and just to build a, a company or product. You actually have to have some empathy for the market that you're dealing with. And we think that that's going to be the opportunity for founders that are thinking about that and are thinking about the whole life cycle of building AI-powered, AI-enriched products, that there are going to be opportunities. And these opportunities are going to take many, many years to play out. Well, many, many years. Like in my, in my thinking, it's like you know, three to five years, maybe eight years. Um, but nonetheless, now is the time to start. Now is the time to learn. Now is the time to experiment. And for those founders who either have left big tech companies or, more importantly, were laid off or fired from those companies, they're going to be hungry to be building those products and those services. So that's really where I think Brian and I, you know, both students of history, both um, internet history as well as social media history, as well as longer term history, are seeing opportunities for us to support those founders, coach them through launch, and help them get distribution um, and to be discovered. I also think, uh, Alex, that it is going to be, there's going to be a ton of M&A over the next three years, right? So um, 
I like you have seen like the studies and things like that that and and anecdotally, oh, we didn't expect that all of the incumbents would uh, adopt this AI stuff that quickly, right? Like pe- everybody and their mother has added um, AI features to their existing products, right? Um, where it gets tricky is where it gets fundamentally disruptive to like again, Microsoft adds. Um, AI to Excel, but what if you had something that AI could do that obviates the need for a spreadsheet entirely, right? Um, the, the thing that we're looking at is like, again, to use the, the, the spreadsheet example, like Chris and I, believe me, there are a hundred different startups out there that are like, uh, draw on a napkin a room and the AI will generate like sort of uh, the, the, the perfect uh, interior design. A beautiful or like, interior for you. Yeah. Um, but like my wife is, is an architect and every time those come through, we float them by her and she's like, can it create a BIM file for me that I can send to the structural engineer? No. Uh, why? Cause it's, uh, two kids, 25 years old from Stanford. There's no architects on the, the you know, she's like, uh, you know that we have, I'll lose my license if things do not meet certain like building code standards and things like that. So like our, like our dream sort of, uh, company to come our way right now would be like, a 25-year-old from Stanford that's uh, AI guru, um, uh, an, uh, an architect with 20 years experience that understands, um, you know, the needs of the profession and the and, and someone that's ex-autodesk, right? <laughs> because what my wife is like is like the day that you could come to me and you could train my, you could train an AI on my previous, you know, career long history of drawings and like this is how I like to design an interior this is how I like to and 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 you could do the napkin sketch into the AI thing but it's based on what I like to do so it's like my style of design and it's functional like so that in a day I could have BIM files that are actionable that's the 10x sort of equivalent to the the spreadsheet yeah, yeah I think maybe maybe Brian another way to, to layer this is is I do like Microsoft's frame of co-pilots. And if we think about these as tools for collaboration and for reasoning and for thinking through or going through the creative process, then ultimately you kind of want a mix where, you know, as, as, as Brian said, like Lisa would submit her designs to train an AI. She would produce a series of sketches. She would then submit them to the AI to get some other ideas or other directions, perhaps returning sketches in her style in order for her to work out the thought process. And then when it's time to actually move forward into the finalization workflow, then they could, she could go into a mode that is all about that type of collaboration. The problem is that so many of these generative AI tools are designed only on the final product and the outcome. Uh, and, and those outputs and outcomes are based on a popularity contest on the internet which is all good and well, but not necessarily the most appropriate for coming up with novel ideas or synthesizing new outcomes or coming up with entirely new concepts or practices. So it's great for maybe returning to things that have been done or are well understood in the marketplace and are therefore somewhat commoditized, but creating things that are new expressions and creative, I think still is an area where there's loads of opportunity. Yeah, this is interesting for two reasons. The first is that it is. It seems to be an application that, like something like a Google, will not want to go after because it's just small enough to be under the radar for them, but just big enough that it could be a really interesting company. And the second reason is that because we talk about generative AI, and it seems like the conversation always goes toward chatbots. But if it can go towards, for instance, blueprints or 
having a dialogue with other like important technical but creative uh, uh, images, then you could really, and plans, then you could really get into an interesting place. We're here with Brian McCullough and Chris Messina. We're running this both on the Big Technology Podcast feed and on the Tech Meme Right Home feed. If you're a Big Technology Podcast listener, I definitely think that their show is worth checking out. Brian's show is worth checking out every day, a little update on what's going on in tech. And if you're a Tech Meme Right Home listener, I'd say, you know, come give Big Technology Podcast a, ch- a shot. Well, we do Alex, weekly, how m- twice weekly how many times interviews have we seen about... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, how many times have we seen on Twitter people say that they use Tech Meme every day and your show for uh, the the in depth sort of stuff uh, twice a week? I think it's do. a great pairing. It's been it's yes. really it, it does. If you're going to think about your tech podcast media diet, you know, I think putting those two together, that's the way to go. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back on the other side of this break to talk about how these two were able to get in front of the Mark Andreessen's and Dennis Crowley's of the world. Um, and we're able to convince them to invest. And then we have a couple of AI-related stories that we want to talk about, AI warfare, AI, and the Hollywood strike. We'll make it a quick second half, so stick with us. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here with Brian McCullough and Chris Messina, two investors who are raising a $15 million target fund from investors, including Mark Andreessen and Dennis Crowley, Chris Dixon. I have some thoughts about Mark Andreessen that maybe I'll share on a different show. But in the meantime, I'd like to hear how you were able to get in front of him to raise the money from him. And don't you, doesn't he also have like an AI related fund? So talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, sure. Um, the short answer is, is that it's because uh, Mark and, and Chris Dixon listen to the show. Uh, Chris is very kind. He has said multiple times that when uh, the Andreessen Crypto Fund invests in a company or hires new people, they give them my book. Um, so the bottom line is, is that um, actually it was it was uh, Chris and, and Mark. Th- those were the first two LPs we reached out to. There's some other um, luminary names that you would know, but have not agreed to allow us to use their names to fundraise. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, we went out and and we said sort of um, what you said at the beginning, which is um, no one knows what this space is. Come in with us and, you know, as an LP, you'll be able to see the people we're seeing and the the, the companies and ideas that we're seeing. Great. So we have a few minutes left together. I thought that, you know, we're doing this as a special episode, but we still want to cover some of the news. I feel like doing a big technology podcast or a Tech Meme Ride Home show without going over some headlines would be a complete waste. So let's not waste this opportunity. Now, we're in the middle of this big uh, writer and actor strike in, inside Hollywood. And we put a document together to talk about, you know, to sort of discuss the type of stories we wanted to cover. 
And, uh, you know, usually I like to go through like a more robust setup talking about the story and what's happening and then ask a pointed question. But there's a one liner in this document that just said AI and the Hollywood strike Brian's anecdote without any detail. (laughs) And I was like, I'll be damned if I don't ask about that. So, Brian, let's hear let's hear your perspective on what's going on here. And it seems like you've had an interesting interaction. So I, you know, I do daily tech news and do headlines like you do headlines on your show so you might have done a similar piece i think it was in the washington post maybe where they were talking about how um in this sort of strike moment where how long has it been going on more than two months now um like this might be the moment where tiktok stars the writers become the writers the writers and the um now the actors actors strike. yeah that's shorter Um, oh yeah go ahead um so but that 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 studios might gravitate towards TikTok stars since they're not in a union to in the same way that in the strike in the in the in the aughts that sort of begat the the takeover of reality TV because it was cheaper and non-union um and so TikTok stars might be moving over uh to to fill the gaps of what Hollywood needs for content at the same time the article posited that this was training folks that were in Hollywood that were actors writers or whatever to be like I need my own platform it almost push them into the creator side of the equation and so the the article was positing that um this could kill both sides of the, of the equation in terms of like the traditional Hollywood model and so my anecdote is this you know I'm in podcasting I talk to a lot of podcasters um, I also, weirdly enough, have a background in, in comedy and stand-up comedy and um, imp- improv and stuff like that. So a lot of the shows and, and friends that I listen to, their podcasts, um, are like comedy podcasts. But like, let's just say, um, a broader picture, people that work in Hollywood, right? Um, all of these years, they've had podcasts like comedy and, and uh, various Hollywood folks were early adopters to podcasting because it was like a supplemental thing. Like if you can get staffed on a writer's room for a couple years, then you make a decent living, but then you might not be staffed on a writer's room for a couple years. Or like actors know you go from role to role or whatever. And, and comedians, you know, you go touring, but then, you know, um, the, the pandemic cut down on touring. So here's my anecdote. The people that I know that run comedy podcasts and have done for, it's not like they just started it because of the strike. They've been doing it for five or six years. Almost to a person or to a podcast, they have suddenly gotten extremely serious about it where people have launched memberfuls or Patreons or whatever, where now you could argue that um, people are doing this because they're not getting income. But what I've been seeing over the last two months, and this was really hit home to me uh, last week, where I realized that every comedy podcast I listen to has sort of gotten more professional about it, doubling their episodes and things like that. I'm seeing the people that I know in comedy, they used to think of doing these side hustles, a a YouTube page, a Twitch page, uh, a, a podcast or whatever, as like, this is what pays the rent in between my main gigs. I think they're literally getting sort of evangelism about like well this is my main gig and if i get a show then like that's just gravy so you're um, saying that like, the, the creator economy was delayed by like three years and now yeah. thanks to the strike or or the time. creator economy had been mm. to this point the people that were non-professionals that were trying to break mm. in and i'm seeing it from the reverse now where the professionals are like screw the hollywood system 
I can probably make more money and have, even if it's not more money yet. Do you think it's, it's really screw more- the Hollywood system though? Because it seems like there's this desire to get paid the way that Hollywood pays and that the mm-hmm. creator economy is, you know, as you both know, like a, a slog, it's a lot of work, you know, especially if you're doing, you know, your own stunts effectively. So is there actually a desire to dispense with the Hollywood system, which as I understand, you know, relatively pays well, okay, especially but- through like union fees and, and it might, it might buy. actually, yeah, it might actually be a reverse of the way that we've seen it play out in journalism where in journalism, mm-hmm. the stars have actually like gone and done their own things like Substacks, and stuff. because yeah, Substack because they know they can make more money. It's more stable. The business right. sucks. Mm-hmm. And so they've actually gravitated towards this. Like I will insulate myself from the pressures of the business. But see news the like, thing, like yeah, but that's what I'm saying here. Yeah, Correct. It's Look, different. Hollywood, that's what I'm saying. It's going to yeah. be the reverse. In Hollywood, yeah. you might have a place where the stars, this this system is going to really work very well for them. Barbie movie, Oppenheimer movie. If right. you're a star in one of those movies, you're not, weekend. you don't care about having your own podcast. However, this is something <laughs> that the middle class and even the bottom of, you know, yeah. actors and comedians, they're extremely entertaining. They're very talented. They can be engaging on their own. And, and and this strike might be a wake up call for them, where they say, "Hey, now I'm going to take advantage of this system, so it will be flipped." Where they're the you know the middle class will say, "I can make money and protect myself," and the stars will stay with the system. Whereas in journalism, the stars have left, mm-hmm. and the middle class has remained with the system. Let, let me give you a middle class example, and I don't know if this will people everyone will agree with me. This is middle class, but you know the Office Ladies podcast, um, which is Jenna Fisher and Angela. Uh, Kinsey from from the original show, the U.S. show, The Office, uh, Pam and whatever the other. Mm. So mm-hmm. um, now those are examples of actors for whom I'm sure they've gotten residuals from for whatever degree The Office did play on cable television. But once it's gone to streaming, residuals and things like that stop. The, the Office Ladies podcast, I guarantee you, those two ladies are making seven figures a year from that podcast. And so imagine the equivalent of Jenna Fisher today from an equivalent show where sure you get paid well for the two seasons that Netflix gives you before they cancel the show, but you have this fame and you have this level of notoriety and like, don't you have to have the fame? Like, is like, that's not middle class. I'm sorry. That's, that's like, well, I I could give you other examples of people that that are middle class of Hollywood. That's yes. different than the middle okay. class of America. Yes. I see. That's I see. not Tom okay. Cruise. Right. I, I, okay. Right. I, sure. I tried to Royalty. caveat by saying you wouldn't agree. But so imagine a player actor <laughs> on an equivalent television show today that was a big hit on Netflix that runs for two years that has no residuals. So you got paid well for two years, but you don't get to do anything else with that. Right. Um, you could be the equivalent of Jenna Fisher and be making millions of dollars a year by parlaying that sort of fame into a podcast or a a, a YouTube channel or whatever, so a platform that you own and you control and and is you can still get a, I mean, get a show control. or get a movie, you know. You know, so, so to add to this, that's it. I'm surprised at how uh, sort of uh, uh, negative you are to this idea. I I feel like that this is like training people to grab the means of production in a way that they were only dabbling in before. I, I guess what, I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, though, is that you're still dependent upon these streaming platforms and the algorithms that sort and organize the content. Now, that is not absolutely true if you do, well, not, I was going to say a Substack, you know, sort of tries to have this, you know, 
perspective perception of being neutral, but now that they have notes, they are getting into the business of algorithmic amplification, or at least choosing what you know rises to the top, as opposed to an email inbox, which currently, at least so far, is still reverse chronological. So, my point is that especially for media talent, they are dependent upon platforms like YouTube or Netflix or TikTok or Reels and those types of rich media platforms. And so that's why suggesting that the workers can seize the means of you know, production and distribution, I think is, is not quite accurate because it's just okay. substituting the previous gatekeepers with a new set of algorithmic gatekeepers. Right. Okay, let's, 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 let's move on to, yeah. to um, where we're going to I want to say one more thing, because I think it is, okay, it is relevant to this. I, I was listening to the Artific- Artificiality podcast this morning, and Jonathan Colton, who's a musician, um, made a very u- useful, I think, point, which is to say that the ability to make and derive uh, an income from entertainment is a relatively novel thing in human history. And the fact that we've I- created a regime, intellectual property controls, to protect ideas is something that has only come around in recent human history. It's not something that is guaranteed. It's not something that we necessarily have to persist forever. And especially in the era of generative AI, we may have to rethink the way in which intellectual property and that type of production actually functions. So I thought that was oh my God. very useful. I think that person is so so completely wrong. And entertainment is Great. definitely going to be here to stay. But we have to, we'll, we'll record, let's record. We're going to do another one of these. So we'll, let's table sure, that sure, sure. and we'll come back to it. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. There's this wired story uh, that's completely wild. It's called the AI-powered, totally autonomous future of war is here. I mean, there are some quotes in there that literally come out of a movie. So there's this Israeli guy, uh, Amir Alon, who's built, who's part of this company that's built this autonomous speedboat called the Seagull. And he says that it can be equipped with a remotely operated machine gun and torpedoes that launch from the deck. And he says it can engage autonomously, but we don't recommend it. <laughs> with a smile we don't want to start world war three and the article the next paragraph goes on to basically underscore what this means autonomous systems with the capacity to kill already exist around the globe in any major conflict even one well short of world war three each side will soon fi- face the temptation not only to arm these systems but in some situations to remove human oversight freeing the machines to fight at machine speed in this war of ai against ai only humans will die and it's so interesting to me because obviously we do have this advanced, you know, AI technology that can kill people. But I look at that and I look at like the biggest war in the world right now, which is the Ukraine war. And you have Russians and Ukrainians like fighting side by side in sort of World War One style trench warfare. So, you know, my question is like, um, you know, it seems clearly that this idea of AI warfare is overhyped and maybe we have just reached a state of like we've armed ourselves to the gills, you know, with technologically advanced weapons. And it does seem like there's just so much reticence to use them that I mean, we do, I guess we have Ukraine flying drones into buildings in Russia as we speak. But it just the juxtaposition of that is so interesting. We have trench warfare. That's really what's happening. And all this AI technology in the world, like it's like the most thing that the thing that's being used most is Starlink, where the Ukrainians can communicate with each other. What do you guys make of that? It seems like a contradiction. AI investors. Where is the contradiction? Just that mm. you're, okay, your, your point is that trench warfare is warfare that is being waged in 2023 while we have the technology to essentially execute autonomous warfare. Yeah. So it seems like there are a number of factors to that. One being uh, that, you know, that type of 
I mean, those, those technologies are being deployed increasingly for sure. And we, we know that the, the, the drone technology has improved greatly and that Ukrainians are finding new ways to improvise and create new types of explosive devices that drones previously were not meant to be, uh, as far as I know, sort of used or created for out of off the shelf um, components. So that is happening. I think the question then is to the degree that you have, what does it mean to have a number of robots and self-directed machinery more or less mowing down humans if one side doesn't have to actually deploy humans onto the battlefield at all? Mm. And what does that mean morally to essentially annihilate? I mean, it's, it's, it's a type of, I don't know what to call it. It's not, it's like robicide. It's not genocide, but essentially if you have the ability to do that, you can just decimate people. That is definitely genocide. If you're using robots to kill people, like you are, you can't take the human out of that. It's robot assisted genocide maybe, but it's genocide. Sure. But, but, but I guess I'm asking the question, like what, what are you sort of, it feels like the way in which the quote unquote rules of war have been Mm -hmm. developed is such that there is a sort of desire for two different sides, depending on the type of war it is. But in this case, it's a territorial war for those who desire to maintain ownership and possession of land or a specific place to fight for that land. And at some point, the ability for one side to, you know, uh, declare that they're done fighting and they throw up, you know, the white flag and they surrender, you know, sort of there's, there's a, an, uh, perhaps an honor in that in terms of human society and civilization to surrender to robots that have, you know, executed warfare against you feels like there is something completely lost in at least the traditions of war and that we're not quite ready for societally, like what that would mean. I guess what I'm trying to say uh, is like, where, where is this weaponry? I mean, is it actually being used uh, in, the, in, the, in the conflict? The fact that like it's being built up this way. Let me, let me, let me build off. Be, be there. Let me, let me build up off of something that Chris said tangentially, which is like, so the, it, in, in the history of uh, warfare technology, um, what always happens is somebody, there's a technological leap that uh, one, size ha- one side has and they completely run the table on the other side. So like you can talk about in World War the II. machine gun in the Boer War, but yet in World War I, people hadn't learned the lessons and they were still rolling out cavalry, right? In right. World War II, um, you know, basically battleships were obsolete because of the aircraft carrier, but you still had, you know, the battle of Lake Golf. And mm-hmm. Right now, today, people are questioning to the degree that any surface Navy might be an obsolete technology because of the, the nature of missile technology, et cetera. So Chris is saying um, we have the ability right now for uh, any combatant to have a, a, a drone swarm that is not controlled by human pilots or whatever, and then goes after um, uh, troops on the ground or, God forbid, civilians in cities, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. That will happen, and that has happened, by the way, in, in there's mm-hmm. wars going on in the Caucasus right now where that is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason it will happen is because it's sort of Moore's Law for weaponry, which is, uh, you know, like in the stupid uh, latest uh, uh, Top Gun movie with Tom Cruise, like they don't need pilots anymore. Well, you don't need... <laughs> sort of romantic. But you don't need... You don't even need to train people to sit behind a laptop and, and guide the drones anymore. You can send out a swarm of drones and be like, just decimate everything in this valley, right? I know this is, sounds terrible, and I agree morally it's terrible. It will happen from one side to the other because it'll be so cheap for them to do 
um, that it's the, the Moore's law of like the, the destructive power of the technology. So what Chris said was that will happen. It will be a bloodbath. And then people, the, the other side will learn, well, then we need our own drone, uh, drone mm. swarms that can combat the drone swarms. And so I'm not saying that we're anywhere close to like, what was that movie where it was like you had giant mech robots that fought over Alaska I mean, or something? Avatar from 2 the is like, like too. Isn't that like yeah. almost all movies? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It, okay. <laughs> right, it's like, this, this is not going, I guess it just doesn't seem like this is going in a good direction. This is scary stuff. Are you guys going to invest in military AI technology? We have no plans to. Absolutely not. No plans to. Uh, yeah. no. Okay. We want to, we want, we want to, 10x what people do productively we yeah. want to uh, invest in products not in weapons brian and chris yeah, I, thank I, I, you I, I, so I, I, much for joining um it, just great. a true pleasure to speak with you guys let's do this again sometime soon congrats on the announcement the awesome. first show i think that you're talking about it is this one yeah and we always That's love right. breaking Absolutely. news here on big technology podcast so thanks for helping us do it congratulations and we'll speak to you guys soon Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. We'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Mm-hmm.